Well, hello there, Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week as she enjoys a little bit of time off. Glad to be with you. Certainly have been tuned in all morning long uh, to the Mike Smith show in particular. Lots of buzz lines on basically the idea that healthcare is collapsing here in British Columbia. Certainly we are not the only jurisdiction that is suffering from such a strain on our healthcare and in particular primary care, trying to find a GP, trying to find somebody to help you with what ails you. And in one instance on Vancouver Island, which now has been resolved, we are hearing through the Mike Smith show, uh, you might have heard of the elders uh, on Vancouver Island who actually put a want ad in the Times columnist. I don't know if you've been around all weekend or if you've been sort of tapping out of the news cycle to enjoy a long weekend. Well, you'll want to dial into this because this couple put a want ad in the newspaper to, to try and find anyone who might be able to help renew one person's, this man's uh, much needed vital prescription. It was just astounding to see this ad in the paper. It's astounding that we've gotten to the point where we need to put in a want ad in order to get a prescription renewed, because this isn't just an isolated situation. There are people struggling across this province with primary health care. And one of the most vocal people with regard to trying to navigate the system, trying to manage up through government and really being firm with his message of we need action now to help support doctors in accessing what they need in order to open up spaces for patients who are literally dying for appointments. And we have that man with us. Dr. Burinder Narang is on the line. He is our Global News Medical Contributor. Thanks for doing this. Good afternoon, Jody. Thanks for having me. Now, full disclosure, you and I have been friends for a long time. You are one of the uh, founders of This Is Our Shot.ca, a group of physicians who donated their time in order to help and make healthy those across this country. You are tireless in your work. And and you have taken me on a bit of a journey with how you've tried to navigate the complexities of middle management of medicine, if you will, and, and really gotten the message across from the healthcare professionals boots on the ground as to what's really going on here. Can you share that with our listener? What is happening right now in our healthcare system? Yeah, sure. So I, I wish I could say I was tireless, but I've been pretty damn tired lately, as many of us have. And uh, luckily, I was able to get a couple of days off last week. But, you know, I just want to highlight the um, the story you presented about this uh, elderly couple. When I first read it, it's, you know, it, it's such a small paragraph, but there's so much to take away from it. And um, so if people haven't seen it, I would recommend just reading the blurb. But essentially, it's an, um, an elder couple, couple the, um, someone seeking care for their husband, this person has a PhD, and they're living in a community that has five urgent care centers. And they are relying on um, a corporate service, which isn't designed to replace access to healthcare system, but is there uh, because they've seen an opportunity because people can find care. And what is this person asking for? They are asking for the bare minimum, any appointment, any way to facilitate prescription renewals. And to me, I, when I see that, I'm like, okay, you've got a highly educated person who can't navigate a primary care system, which is uh, the foundation of the primary care system being a publicly funded system. So we we are also quick to tout the benefits um, of a publicly funded system. And I'm one of those people. I don't want to see privatization of medicine. I believe that we should, uh, every patient deserves 
equal access, equitable access um, in a strong publicly funded system, but we don't have that. And so if someone who is smart, educated, can't navigate that system, I'm thinking about the person who doesn't have um, health literacy, who does not have access to technology, who does not have the funds to put an ad in a newspaper and thinking, how the hell are we helping them? It is just, it's just astounding to me. As you said, we love to tell the world how it isn't, um, a diagnosis, for example, a cancer diagnosis doesn't equate bankruptcy like it does in other jurisdictions. We're very lucky that it doesn't drain your bank account in order to get health care. But when we're in a system that was already stretched to the nth degree pre-pandemic, and now we're seeing both the side effects of exhaustion of our healthcare workers, not to mention those who have just said, you know what, enough, I'm taking early retirement, I got to get out of here, and then not having enough people to fill those spaces. And we can get into, we talked to Dr. Kevin McLeod about, you know, trying to find a locum. He took a week off. You said you got a couple days off. When you take a, take time off and you return to your practice, when you turn to see your patients, you're, the landslide of what you missed is still there. The bottleneck returns. Yeah. So when I say that I took two days off last week, I mean, I'm, I work in an environment that does have a team-based care clinic. I work at a non-for-profit community health center, um, which we have relatively been uh, pretty well insulated from um, what's been happening in other places in healthcare because we we are not on a fee-for-service model, and I think that is uh, a barrier to effective team-based care. When um, we can get back to that if we want, but you I know, do, even yeah. in this instance, it was um, um, a bit last minute. Uh, had some you know external factors, COVID in the in some family members and relatives out of town, so I just needed time. So I wasn't able to arrange a locum. So when I say I was off, like for emergency appointments, yes, my my colleagues were definitely um, able to absorb a bit of the kind of urgent need that came up in those few days. But I was still responsible for my own labs, and you know, I, I kept myself available on the phone in case. Um, you know, a colleague needed help or needed to run something past me because a lot of our patients are complex and having a five minute conversation with me, um, even for someone who's covering me, will make their job a lot easier. So it's never really disconnected. (laughs) Right. You're constantly working. I'm constantly filling your inbox with requests and questions and you always get back to me immediately. (laughs) Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week and we are with Global News Medical contributor, Dr. Burinder Narang. We're talking about how... Difficult. I don't know if that's a strong enough word. Almost impossible it is right now to navigate our healthcare system in BC. It's collapsing, but we're not immune to what is happening across the nation. I mean, we hear about this happening in other jurisdictions. I feel feel very strongly for those in smaller towns where they just basically say, yeah, our, our emergency room, it's closed for the weekend. We just don't have staff. It's closed. What do you do? What do you do? And, and I'm, one, I'm a mom. And so I don't think about myself. I think, what about if it's my kid? What if my child needs urgent care? What would I do? I mean, I'd crawl across broken glass to get him care. And I know that Jordan Armstrong, our colleague at Global BC, Dr. Narang, uh, he, new dad, uh, tweeting this morning at hashtag healthcare in British Columbia. It's 7.30 a.m. And the wait time for BC's Children's Hospital emergency is seven plus hours long. Sorry. So when I saw that this morning as well, I was definitely concerned um, because from my experience of when I used to work in children's ERs, especially at this time of year, um, 
that overnight you wouldn't see this level of volume. So when you would be coming in in the morning, um, you wouldn't expect that. It would build throughout the day. And to me, what this suggests, uh, obviously, no, I don't know what's happening there right now. But when I right. see that in the middle of summer, I know that volumes in adult emergencies have been up uh, 15, 20% um, from what I've been hearing from colleagues based on normal averages. I know a lot of them, uh, a lot of the patients that are coming into the emergency rooms are patients that cannot be seen in primary care clinics. And, you know, I think that there are primary care clinics, family doctors out there that really, we all really need to make sure, what are we doing to make sure we have in-person access for our patients as well, too? Um, at REACH, where I work, we've recently increased our in-person to about 75% of the schedule and then keeping 25% for virtual care, knowing that virtual care has, has um, a role to play, but that every clinic is probably doing their own thing. I don't know the last time we got any provincial guidance on how to operate primary care clinics in the context of COVID right now. And if physicians aren't being standardized in the way they're approaching it, then how are patients expected to navigate this, especially new parents? Especially new parents. Oh my gosh, I feel for people who are struggling and because you're worried and you don't want to, you know, do you want to sit in an emergency room waiting area for seven hours with your newborn with as much COVID-19, you know, running through communities right now, Omicron being so prevalent. I saw your tweet this morning about it. Anybody got people in your family, in your life? Put up your hand if you've, if you know somebody that has tested positive and is suffering uh, mild symptoms of, of COVID-19. I mean, there's, there's just so much of that happening right now. Thankfully, we're we're very highly vaccinated, which is something that I want to get to uh, with you before we wrap up today. But before I go to the under fives being eligible starting today, you were referencing how you hold some space, right? There's the virtual piece. There are the, there's the emergency appointments that you have. There's your your standard appointments made by by your patients. What about the what we're hearing more and more is the cap that the government has on the number of patients that that GPs can see in a day. What, what is the reason behind that cap? So the, the cap, um, and again, that's uh, in the fee for service system. So I, I don't work in any place where I would be appreciate, uh, sorry, approaching any cap limit on the patients that I see. But from what I remember, I believe it's around 55 patients, but also, um, you know, I, I don't worry about the cap as much because if you're approaching those numbers on a daily basis, that means you're probably spending seconds to minutes with patients. And right. that is also a big problem. So while there are um, certain things that can be seen in a high volume, effective manner, then yes, it's reasonable to have a cap at a certain number. Um, but knowing that that cap is huge, it's super high. Like it, just do okay. the math on 50 plus patients. Uh, right. a day and you'll see kind of you know how many hours is someone putting into it the most i ever saw was 42 patients in six hours at a walk-in clinic that was operated um in a mall and i felt like a concierge service and i never went back there because that's not medicine wow no incredibly so i mean that's like when you have yeah. a wedding and 120 people come to your wedding and you say hi to each person for one minute you just spent 120 minutes or two hours just saying hi nice to see you welcome thanks for coming yeah. uh, you know right like yeah. just to put it into perspective what we're talking about here and some some people need a 30 minute appointment and other people just need to get 
that prescription renewed. So don't do the small talk with your doctor. Make room for your physician because the paperwork that comes in between, the overhead that needs to be done, the administrative stuff, like just the input into the computers, like we've talked about all of that. Um, And and I don't think we're going to solve all of these issues right now, but talking it through is really important. I do want to get back to the fact that today is the day that kids under the age of five will be eligible, are eligible, I should say, for their COVID-19 vaccine, a two-dose course, eight weeks apart. Um, For parents who might be feeling uncertain or nervous about this, Dr. Narang, can you can you give them your learned perspective on what this does versus what uh, an infection might do? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, what we do know about kids, um, and I'm going to talk generally here because I haven't seen, I'll be honest, I haven't seen the latest on the six-month to five-year population. As I said, we've been pulled in a thousand different directions, but For what sure. we have learned from all the other age groups and, and to a certain extent is the severity of illness does not really correlate to kind of how severe someone might get long COVID symptoms. Now, we are saying that younger patients definitely have a lower risk of long COVID symptoms. But I I, want to take that all away and say, let's get back to the basics here. Vaccines save lives. And so even now, the latest US CDC data that I was looking at this morning, our CMA president, Dr. Smart, tweeted about it, showed that um, the latest data from the US CDC on COVID vaccine effectiveness, and they categorized people zero doses to two boosters. During the last week of May, a full primary vaccination plus two boosters meant a risk of death was cut by 96% compared to unvaccinated people. So vaccines work. So I think what people are worried about is really what is the safety profile for children? And from all the safety data I've seen in all the age groups, um, we're not seeing any big red flags. And so that's what's what's key to me. Is it safe? Yes. How effective it's going to be? I can't give you a slam dunk on that because the variants are changing too fast. But um, when you balance the things, I know that the principles of vaccines keep people safe. And so that applies to our youngest um, and vulnerable patients as well. And with 30 seconds to go, Berinder, can you just talk to the person who says these vaccines don't work because people are getting COVID? Yeah, if we if we keep trying to chase a vaccine strategy to eliminate all transmission, we've missed the mark here. That's impossible. That's going to be a failing uh, strategy. We will never be able to get ahead of it. But we can keep people safe, keep them out of hospital and all the other benefits, including um, some benefit from long COVID, some uh, benefits, huge benefit to preventing that multi-inflammatory syndrome in children. So the benefits of vaccines completely outweigh the risk of transmission. Always learn from you, my friend. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time on what I'm sure is a busy day for you. Cheers. Take care. Have a good afternoon. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, and we're turning our attention to uh, some legal issues, uh, a couple of big ones, but we're starting with the biggest one. You can't go higher than the Supreme Court of Canada in this country. And on Friday, you you may have missed it. There was a ruling that came down about condoms being tied to consent. And there's a really great article that is written in the Georgia Strait, and it's written by our next guest, Sarah Lehman, who is the principal at uh, the Lehman, what is the correct title here? Lehman Law Group. Uh, Lawyer Sarah Lehman's on the line. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm reading along in your your article, and it's it's fascinating to sort of go on this journey because the headline is one thing. You know, no condom equals no consent, period. And then, but you dig a little deeper and there are more than one um, sort of case 
reference at play here. Can you walk our listener through, as opposed to me reading your article aloud on the radio, can you walk us through uh, what you know and how this how this came to be? Sure. Yeah, this is a very interesting case, and it's actually one that has roots here in B.C. Um, So the facts in the case before the Supreme Court of Canada were that there was a woman who met a gentleman and they decided to have sexual relations with one another. She, however, told him that she was only comfortable having sex if he had used a condom. And so they went ahead and they engaged in their uh, consensual activities with a condom. But then later on, on a second occasion, he didn't use a condom. And she provided evidence to the court saying that she had no idea that he had failed to use a condom on that occasion, which was contrary to her explicit condition upon which she was agreeing to have sex with him. And so this went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, The Supreme Court had to decide whether or not a person can put this condition on sexual activity, namely the use of a condom. And if a person failing to abide by that condition, therefore commits assault because consent is essentially nullified by their failure to abide by that condition. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, yes, it does, that we can put this condition on sexual activity and that if a person specifies yes, but with a condom, that means yes, but with a condom. So in this case, R.V. Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick wore that condom the first time that sexual intercourse was consensually had, but the second time he did not. Do we know why not? Did he say he did he give reason? There was some evidence in the case that he actually engaged in some deceitful behavior prior to um, getting down to business on the second occasion, that he had specifically leaned over, you know, towards the nightstand where he had kept the condoms and that he kind of motioned that uh, although he was putting a condom on. Um, So there was some evidence that there was this kind of pattern of deceit, if you want to put it that way, with respect to the second occasion. But the Supreme Court of Canada says that that's not even necessary in order to nullify consent, that simply refusing to wear a condom where it's a condition of the sexual activity is enough to amount to sexual assault. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And there's another case that's similar but different um, that I learned about within your column, Sarah, uh, in the Georgia Strait. Can you give our listener an idea of what happened in the case of R.V. Hutchinson? Yeah, this one has a bit more strange facts, if we want to put it that way, more unusual, um, in that we had, again, a couple um, who were having regular sexual intercourse on the basis that the female had requested her male partner to wear a condom at all times as a birth control measure. Now, he did wear a condom. However, what she didn't know was that he was tampering with those condoms. He was poking holes in them in order to try to purposefully get her pregnant. And that is ultimately what happened. She ended up getting pregnant, uh, and he ended up confessing to police that he indeed tampered with these condoms in order to essentially render them useless. And in that case, it was found that this, that, that this amounted to fraud. So not necessarily sexual assault, but rather fraud. And that can be a more onerous legal test to meet because we have to satisfy the court that there was, you know, some deceit, um, at least in order to establish that basis. Uh, but in those cases of condom tampering, it would be a fraudulent activity. And again, it would be criminal. 
Okay, so different but similar. Now back to Kirkpatrick and the decision that really um, does change. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling for the correct words to use here. As you're, you're much more eloquent in speaking around this um, interesting topic for for radio. But to sort of to sidestep that layer of protection that we all have been taught for years and years and years that is vital on many, many levels, not necessarily even pertaining to pregnancy as much as it is to sexually transmitted diseases, et cetera, et cetera. Condoms are a barrier that help protect both parties, but particularly protect women from a multitude of issues that might be an unintended consequence of sexual intercourse. How might this change the legal navigation for somebody who's like, whoa, I've totally had this happen to me. How do you go about proving that you asked for that layer of protection and then did not have that be a part of your sexual experience? I think it would be very similar to exactly how we prosecute regular, you know, quote unquote, sexual assault cases now. Um, So typically in sexual assault cases, we don't really have any other evidence but for the statement of the complainant and perhaps the statement of the accused person. Sometimes we might have, you know, witness statements or video pictures, things like that. But that's the exception to the rule. Most of these cases are, if you want to put it this way, he said, she said. Um, And I think that these types of cases will end up proceeding in a very similar manner. So how big of a move is it that the Supreme Court has has handed down this ruling in this way? Well, I think it's very important because, well, first of all, it does recognize the types of you know, harm that could come up upon people if their wishes are not respected in this manner. Right. And that's huge because it looks at bodily autonomy and it concedes that, yes, pregnancy is a very big deal that has very severe consequences for people who don't wish to go through it, um, as well as the transmission of STIs. It recognizes that most people who are affected by non-consensual condom removal are marginalized in some way. So perhaps sex workers, for instance, right. um, or members of the LGBTQ plus community or women. And so I think this is a very big move on the Supreme Court's part. And I also think it's very progressive. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. I want to remind you that our buzz lines are always open. 604-331-2899. If you want to comment on anything that we're discussing on the show, those buzz lines are just like a voicemail box. You just leave a message. Eric Chapman is monitoring them for us today. 604-331-2899. Say hello to Eric. Uh, Give us your thoughts on perhaps what we were talking about in this last segment with lawyer Sarah Lehman about how the Supreme Court of Canada has has changed the rules with regard to consent when it comes to uh, sexual encounters. A condom can be the difference between consent and sexual assault. It's a really important conversation to have. I'd love to hear from you on this subject. 604-331-2899 is the number. Also want you to chime in, and I know you will want to chime in. Most people are talking about this right now. The Tire Extinguishers Vancouver, T-Y-R-E, Extinguishers Vancouver, are a group who are going around and deflating the tires on SUVs in the name of the climate emergency. Then you have Extinction Rebellion who have ramped back up. They've said, we're back. We're not being heard by government. We're going to start damaging property and, and historic landmarks and 
block roadways and and essential infrastructure. They are willing, they say, Sarah Lehman, to go to jail if that is what's needed in order to be heard by government. Activists and activism seems to be taking on a bit of a new face from a legal perspective. What is at play here? Because we're we're used to seeing a blockade. You know, we've seen Mayor Kennedy Stewart handcuffed on Burnaby Mountain, you know, uh, disturbing the peace or, or blocking, um, you know, work that was sanctioned to be to be done there. Um, but but those who would block essential infrastructure, those who would damage historic landmarks, what might be at play for them? Well, I mean, if they say they're willing to go to jail, they very well may go to jail. Um, these types of things that they're engaging in, in my opinion anyways, uh, do not fit the definition of peaceful protest at all. And they go far beyond that, in fact. Um, I do think that these people can and perhaps should be charged with something like, for instance, mischief as a result of some of these activities. So would it be the government that would charge them with that? Or is it, is it a citizen? Like if I got the, you know, I... If I was driving a gas-guzzling SUV right now and I went outside in the city of Vancouver and my tires were flat and maybe they left a message of some sort or what have you, can I take them to court? Can I try what I call the non-emergency VPD number and, and start a case against this organization? Yeah, that's exactly what you would do. So you would want to contact the police to allow the police to conduct a criminal investigation into it. I mean, there might be some civil ramifications if you could actually show that it was indeed, you know, this person or this group that did that uh, and you suffered some loss or damage. Um, But, you know, more likely than not, I think that it would be a police investigation and it would be the police who are equipped to undertake that. We're with Sarah Lehman, uh, lawyer, Sarah Lehman from Sarah Lehman Law Group. And some ask with you know, the flyer that was put out that the, the tire extinguishers uh, website is right there. Like, why wouldn't the government or the police be proactive in going to whoever, you know, registered that URL and said, hey, <laughs> we're taking you in? Yeah, and I mean, perhaps they have, right? Um, I expect that there is a police investigation underway into this. Something like deflating tires on SUVs, in my opinion, does pose a pretty significant risk to the public. Um, and not only that, I mean, it's also a massive, massive, not just inconvenience, but issue for people who rely on their vehicles for various purposes, say they're disabled right. or, or otherwise. And so I think that this is something that should definitely be looked into. So is this something, how does one put together a class action lawsuit? Like when a group of individuals come together all with a similar, similar issue, one couldn't get to their chemo treatment, one got fired from their job because their tires were deflated, you know, one had some other, as you said, a physical disability that, that therefore they couldn't, you know, leave their house or do the thing they must do. If, how does one gather all of those pieces together? Does it start with you? Does it start with a lawyer? Does everybody go to the same lawyer? <laughs> well, I mean, that would be on the civil side of things. Yes. So if, if they wanted to get together, you know, and say sue the person or the organization that did this, then then there would normally be some type of civil action that would be started by one particular lawyer or law firm. So they would have to get in touch with them. But, you know, you could also pursue this in a criminal way with a multi, um, a multi-count indictment or uh, information. And so you could see somebody being charged with multiple offenses of, say, for example, mischief in relation to numerous different complainants. So th- what the, what's going on in my mind right now is how do we as citizens 
do more than yell out at the activists saying, stop making us so angry and yelling at government to take action. Because the government, if they take action, it's just going to spark more protests such as these. Because government's like, we're not dealing with that. We're that, that we'll let them exhaust themselves. They've literally, because I said, why not do something? Why not have a conversation with them? And the government's like, yeah. That's or it was Keith Baldry who said, yeah, that's not happening um, because you don't negotiate with people who are destroying things or uh, causing, um, like I said, important infrastructure, highways and bridges uh, blocked. We, I mean, we can take it all the way back to Ottawa. It's one thing to protest on the steps of Parliament. It's another to shut down the city centre. So how is it that citizens can can meaningfully push back on that will it take a group of people to come together and try and and hold these these organizations to account if they disagree with the activism you know i really don't have the answer to something like that because it's such a huge problem Um, but what i will say is that i find it very disheartening that these groups are engaging in these types of um, unreasonable tactics in order to advance a cause that is uh, very legitimate And it really does alienate members of the public from their cause when they see them engaging in these type of tactics that people are not okay with, quite frankly. You know what, Sarah, I'm so glad you said that. And we can leave it right on that point, because I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, A, as an individual citizen, do not want to see old growth forests chopped down uh, when when they should be protected. And I also believe that the climate emergency requires our attention. I don't believe that letting air out of the tires of everybody's SUVs is going to help. And I don't believe that blocking the Lionsgate Bridge is going to help with that. So thank you for putting the period at the end of that very important sentence, Sarah. What a great chat with you. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. It's time to talk about COVID-19 vaccines, right? We are one of the most vaccinated parts of the planet. We are so fortunate to have access to what Dr. Peter Hotez, Professor Peter J. Hotez calls the McLaren or Ferrari of vaccines here in this corner of the world, when we have access to the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. And many of us have had three doses, two doses in the primary set plus the booster dose. And and some are getting that second booster dose. It is optional for you to get that booster dose now. Many of us received that text saying, your dose is coming in the fall. As somebody who was an early candidate for vaccination as an essential caregiver for my dad who is in long-term care, I had my first dose in January of 2021. So I'm 10 months out of my booster dose at this moment. So I called the number and it was super easy to, to set up my, my fourth dose, my second booster. Are you following along on the bouncing ball? I'm getting my second booster shot this coming Saturday at the pharmacy at the end of my street. Really easy to do. If you want to get uh, a dose now before getting the new variant dose later in this in this fall that's coming, uh, you can. You can call 1-833-838-2323. Just Google Vaccine BC and that number will come up. Now, adults doing really well. Teenagers and young people also doing really well. Kids, different story. Parents might be a little bit nervous. And certainly today, being the day that kids five and under can access a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm sure there's a lot of questions, and that's why we've invited the one and only Dr. Brian Conway back to the program. He is the medical director and infectious diseases specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. Dr. Conway, thank you for giving us your time today. 
Always a pleasure, Jody. Okay, we're going to line up phone calls because I know there are parents who are like, I need to talk to Dr. Conway about this. So let's do that right now. We're opening them up. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is free on your cell. Star 9898. You can get through. Tim French uh, will be putting you through to our phone boards. And while we do line up the callers, Dr. Conway, can you just unpack for us the safety piece of this puzzle. As a parent, I know that would be my first question for my little. I have a 14-year-old. He was 12 when he got it. Yeah, late 12, just about 13 when he got his first dose. And I was crying. I, I did not realize how relieved I would be when he received that shot in his arm. I was so relieved. I'm not like every parent, though. There are some who are really worried. Well, it's always more difficult to make a decision for someone else than it is to make it for ourselves and probably as parents more difficult to make it for our children. So we want to make sure that we're, we are making the right decision, that we are not uh, putting them in harm's way. And I think uh, the new information for younger children from six months to six years, the clinical trial that included 7,000 uh, children, including about uh, 400 Canadians, showed that the only side effects that occurred were very minor pain where the injection occurred, some aches and pains, a bit of a headache, feeling a bit tired for a day or so, and that uh, everyone just got better. So in that younger age group that is receiving, I should say, a quarter of the adult dose, which is the one that produces the same level of antibodies as we're used to seeing in adults, um, that it was very safe. No myocarditis, pericarditis, no heart inflammation, uh, with the limitations that 7,000 uh, children were studied, no rare uh, side effect. It was very reassuring on that front. So a safe and effective vaccine is the goal, obviously, and it appears that this one, I mean, to, to have it approved for, for this use, it would have been rigorously looked at. And, and certainly, Dr. Conway, we've talked about this a lot with regard to COVID-19 vaccines. Has there ever been a scenario with which a vaccine has been tested on billions with a B people? Like no, it has I think, here? I, that's such a good point to make. People who are initially suggesting this happened too fast. This was the final chapter in a 20 chapter book. People had been working on this for decades. And it's just the advent of COVID and the advent of funding allowed that last hurdle to be to be addressed. So I think that's, that addresses that. In terms of conspiracy theories, people are hiding things. This is the most transparent I've ever seen in the field of science going back several decades in my career. Everything is out there uh, to be seen. All of the data can be analyzed in any which way you would like, and we're very confident that these are safe and effective vaccines. It took a while to get it right for younger children, and I think that's a sign of the scientific process just running its course. People right. said it would be available last year. You know, the studies didn't work. They had to do them again and again to get it right, and they only released it once they got it right. So I think, you know, people ask all of your questions. Just make sure that the answer that you're getting is based on an evaluation of the evidence and not on, on some other some other reality that, that people are are, um, are are coming up with that just isn't consistent with the facts. 
Right. Your YouTube video is probably not as good of a resource as, as perhaps the CDC, the WHO, or Dr. Brian Conway, the medical director at the Infectious Diseases <laughs> Center of Vancouver. We're, gonna, we're opening up phone 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. James and White Rock, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I actually have two questions. My first question is, is this new Omicron strains, the B4 and B5, I believe, aren't they directly like negating the vaccines and, and mutating to get around them? And my second question is, why is it for everyone else in the population, the delay between shots being six months or eight months and young kids, it's eight weeks? So what we're talking about with the young kids right now is the prime boost, the initial vaccination. So that's where the eight weeks uh, comes from. The longer delay is for subsequent shots. And as far as the efficacy of the vaccine against Omicron, this latest study that was done in the younger children was in the era of Omicron. And although they developed the same level of antibody as the vaccines elicited in adults, protection against Omicron was a little less uh, good. So it was at about 50% rather than the 80 to 90% we're used to seeing. Um, but all cases of disease that occurred were, were not severe and there were no long-term consequences that were observed of, of that infection. So it's protective, but a bit less so, but very important to get nonetheless. What was your second question, James? No, I was no, I, I was just wondering because I got my first shot and then I had to wait for eight months to get my second shot. So the, the, the difference mm. in time periods for initial vaccines is different. Yeah, that shouldn't have been, to be honest with you. I think early on, especially, there were issues of vaccine supply. There was some debate as to whether the second shot should be given four weeks after the first one, as was done in clinical trials. Uh, people wanted to stretch it out because we didn't have enough vaccine. I think right now in this day and age, we understand that a prime boost, the first two shots, should be given probably four to eight weeks apart, somewhere in there. All right. Um, let's go to Kathy in Abbotsford. Your question for Dr. Brian Conway. Welcome. Hi. I'm just wondering what you can tell me that will really encourage me to um, encourage others to get vaccinated. I don't know that much about it, and I haven't been vaccinated myself because... I'm very leery of it. Well, I think as Jody said, it's been uh, studied in over, not studied, it's been administered to billions of people now. So we understand this vaccine. Its efficacy has been confirmed. Uh, even in the era of Omicron, it provides some uh, protection, especially if you get the third and also the fourth shot. We're coming up with a better vaccine in the fall in terms of more targeted against Omicron. So that will benefit most uh, significantly those who are previously vaccinated. So those are all the reasons to get vaccinated. Uh, in terms of safety, we would love there to be no side effects at all, but the side effects are rare. The side effects that are more common are all minor. And the risk of getting COVID, especially if you're an older adult, far outweigh any risks that the vaccine carries. So that would probably, and, and it's, it's what vaccination is what has helped us tame the pandemic. So I think that would be my, uh, my short version of why people should be vaccinated. Kathy, can I ask you a quick question? And, and please, if, yeah. it's too per, if it's too personal, tell me you don't want to say. But is there a reason why you are 
leery? Is there a specific reason why you were leery of getting your first dose? Well, I have had many um, vaccine injuries around me, and, you know, like, that that's the only reason. I have been vaccinated in the past, but for some reason I choose I chose to wait to get the vaccine and to see a little bit what, what was happening around me, because even when COVID was here, I didn't know a lot of people that had COVID, but when the vaccine did come... Um, I did, I did have um, a few people that, you know, five or six people in my circle that got severely injured. And that's what kind of has put me off. In what way were they injured? Um, uh, my one aunt got AFib from both of the vaccines. It just got worse. She's only had two, but she got AFib from both of them. She had to go to emergency. And then... Um, I know a teacher in the area and three of her students got myocarditis. So it was all heart problems. Dr. Conway, what would you say to somebody who's concerned that way? Well, again, we would love things to have no side effects. However, heart issues, heart inflammation has been one of the more significant side effects. Generally occurring in younger males can occur in other populations. But the risk of heart disease, heart inflammation, atrial fibrillation, AFib, or anything else from COVID is far more significant than any risks that's associated with the vaccine. So if someone is avoiding the vaccine because of the perceived risk of heart issues, then if they were to get COVID in the unvaccinated state, the risk of heart issues is far more significant than anything associated with the vaccine. Does that help you, Kathy? Yeah, I still don't feel that much better, but that's okay. I just wanted to see what, you know, what he he would be able to tell me. Okay, I think to summarize, if I may, he's yeah. telling you, he's telling you that this vaccine is safe, effective and has been given to billions of people around the planet and has proven to be exceptionally effective in in avoiding severe illness, hospitalization, and death. The concerns you have about heart issues associated with the vaccine are exponentially greater with the virus than they are with the vaccination. And you cannot get the booster dose until you've had your first series of vaccines. So please consider uh, speaking with your physician, your healthcare uh, team, and, and finding a way to get all of the information you're looking for. Kathy, I appreciate you. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett, along with Dr. Brian Conway, the medical director at Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. Phone lines open for your calls and questions about COVID-19 vaccinations for kids five and under, or really any question you might have for Dr. Conway. You're so great at answering the questions, doctor. Rick in Richmond, so you're up you. first Jody, Jody, oh. Jody you, your summary, I was just going to say the summary you gave just before the break. Uh, You can be your own guest. That's excellent. That's exactly how I think about it. Well, thank you. you. It's because you've made yourself available. I feel like you've educated me and we can help our listener understand what we're facing here. There's so much noise around it and you break through the noise. Dr. Brian Conway, like I said, every time we talk, I learn. (laughs) I appreciate your time more than I can say, sir. Always a pleasure, Jody. Until next time. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We turn our attention south of the border. There is much, much to report on in the United States and the United States having some action, a drone strike, in fact, in Afghanistan that has killed an Al-Qaeda leader. We bring in our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini, to bring us up to speed on all of this and more. Reggie, thanks for doing this. 
Good afternoon. Rather an historic day in the United States yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And there are some that were calling this President Joe Biden's Barack Obama moment uh, when uh, the president announced that a targeted drone strike took out the number one terrorist in the world, the uh, leader of Al Qaeda, uh, similar to the announcement back in 2011 when Barack Obama announced the death uh, of bin Laden. And while this is a big move for Joe Biden, what is also big about it is that this is a win that is also being lauded by Republicans. Uh, It's difficult for uh, both parties to come together uh, in this uh, kind of political era. But at the end of the day, uh, given the fact that this was such a threat, not only in the region, but to kind of global stability, this is uh, a big day and win for the president. So clearly when people are focusing in on one issue or another, the infighting between the Republicans and the Democrats and, and saying, you know, we can't talk about this because we should be talking about that. Clearly, there is the ability in this administration to do more than one thing. I mean, President Joe Biden, having had uh, his positive test for COVID-19 last week, taking Paxlovid, testing negative, and then having that rebound case of COVID come back. So the president of the United States testing positive for COVID-19 and all the while approving this drone strike simultaneously. uh, Hard to argue that Biden's doing nothing in this moment. Yeah, I think this kind of pushes back on some of that uh, or some of those Republican talking points that this president uh, has been struggling in his position. This kind of proves, uh, at least at a surface level, that that President Biden can walk and chew gum at the same time, especially when he's facing uh, a number of different crises. And given that positive COVID taste, uh, COVID um, uh, uh, case that came back after the Paxlovid, uh, he's in isolation. But the, the pictures show that he was uh, in constant communication with with uh, his intelligence officials. And just a couple of weeks ago, we saw the photo of him in uh, the Situation Room uh, beginning uh, what would be this month-long journey to mark the end of the leader uh, of Al-Qaeda. This was not just a one-and-done event. This took days and weeks uh, of preparation. And even given the president's current condition, this is a remarkable moment for not just uh, the United States and its citizens, but for people around the world, uh, given the fact that that we just heard from the White House today that Al-Qaeda has metastasized. And it simply was not a one and done thing when bin Laden was killed. This was an ongoing threat, albeit quiet. So go through what exactly happened, because I found it fascinating that U.S. President Joe Biden had his primetime address to tell the nation how this strike came to be, that he was in in contact with his Republican counterparts. Joe Biden, known to be that, you know, moderate sort of pulling everybody together, crossing party lines. Uh, And he did make a point of saying that he was in touch with his Republican counterparts in the days leading up to this strike in Kabul, in a safe house in the Capitol. Um, How how surprising is a that that he that this uh, Al Qaeda leader was in the Capitol, not in some fringe territory and that there were no civilian casualties associated with this drone strike? Well, on the former, I think it speaks to uh, what the United States said that it had intended to do when it pulled out from Afghanistan uh, roughly a year ago. And and while that exit was um, was 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 a calamity, it was catastrophic for this administration. It said in the after effect that it would be able to carry out these kind of intelligence and counterintelligence operations via over the horizon uh, missions, and that's precisely what this was. We don't know the full details of how the intelligence came about. 
We don't know if that's ever going to come forward. But ultimately, the information was brought back to uh, CIA uh, operatives in the United States. Uh, and I think, Jody, it's worth pointing out when when there's a terrorist with tens of millions of dollars worth of bounty on their head, that does entice cooperation was it from someone in the taliban was it from somebody uh who was just within afghanistan who had an idea what was going on something still to be seen in that strike though the fact that these um these missiles were carried out from a drone very precisely after weeks of coordination to just take out one person on a balcony speaks to what the united states is now capable and able to do despite the fact that they no longer have boots on the ground but i think a second question here, uh, Jody, is to what you mentioned. He was in Kabul. He was not in the mountainous outskirts of, of Afghanistan. Um, does this raise a question that the Taliban potentially was allowing Afghanistan to become a safe haven for terrorists despite signing that peace deal during the Trump administration? These are questions that are now starting to bubble up. They simply don't have an answer yet. Has there been any reaction from the Taliban uh that has been, you know, put out in, in public channels to this point? I mean, look, there's, there's always going to be a reaction. I think the biggest question, uh, at least when it comes to what is next, you know, despite the fact that there has been this condemnation uh, from, from, uh, from Taliban leaders, um, what the Taliban is saying is, is that the, the drone strike was a violation of the U.S. troop withdrawal. But at the same right. time, they also understand that they are ultimately going to be on the line if they were the ones who were responsible for uh, al-Qaeda being able to be kind of covertly within uh, the center of what is arguably the biggest city uh, in the country. So on one hand, they're, they're condemning it as, as violating an agreement. On the other hand, they're also being very careful to ensure that they don't find themselves at the wrong end uh, of what is now proven to be a very capable U.S. Uh, counterintelligence uh, operation. Fascinating, as you said, that the what did you call it from from beyond the horizon, being able to have impact in such a faraway country, targeting somebody of this level without putting any service people, U.S soldiers at risk of any kind it is really quite something it is uh, and especially when you think about how 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 um destructive and deadly that withdrawal was from afghanistan yeah. last year that ultimately left the taliban in power and it left americans uh, outside of that country they have no boots on the ground they do not have assets in the country to be able to assist with these kind of uh, intelligence sharing like they used to have. So, you know, again, it's still unknown how the information was being uh, processed back in towards Washington. But the fact that this this was able to be carried out, as they say, over the horizon, uh, you know, kind of just on, on the whim and on the, the assumption whether they're using satellites or whether they're using other kinds uh, of information potentially from allies here, this was a remarkable moment for a, uh, for a military and realistic for an administration that had been um, all but destroyed uh, for their credibility, at least, when it came to how they exited that country, the harm that it put Americans uh, into, and also the harm that it put kind of innocent civilians into when the U.S. walked out. And no question damaged the administration when it comes to popularity within the United States up until like how this might change or shift um, that possibly purple, maybe even red state mentality of having to go against the bad guy and how Sleepy Joe wasn't doing that. And, and it's kind of hard to call him Sleepy Joe Snowflake 
uh, when this is the top news story for this administration right now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that this is going to give him a political win on top of the, you know, legislative wins that have very slowly been piling up over the last couple of years, including a potential, uh, you know, health care and climate bill that may find some legs in the Senate to carry forward. This is something that can at least be, um, you know, applauded by both sides of the political aisle in Washington. You know, how that trickles down to to the base, uh, whether it's in the Democrats or Republicans, that's something that's obviously going to play out over the next 90 days before uh, the midterms. But at the end of the day, the administration and Democrats, at least, do have something else to be able to run on to say, look at what the president is doing, even in the face of X, Y and Z uphill battles. Right. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett, continuing our chat with Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, talking about what is happening in the United States. Well, the top lines anyway, and certainly the escalation of global tension and the shift in who might be the global superpower and how they might flex their muscles. Certainly, we've seen many changes in in how politics plays out and who holds and how they wield power. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan, Reggie, this a big moment in U.S. politics. A big moment in U.S. politics, a big moment in geopolitical, uh, in the geopolitical atmosphere uh, as well. Nancy Pelosi, the first uh, speaker to touch down on Taiwanese soil in a quarter century, the last being Republican Newt Gingrich in 1997, but a trip that kind of ends a a trip around Asia over the last several days that came despite kind of quiet pressure from the White House and the Pentagon to not go loud pressure and criticism from Beijing to not go, but open arms and welcome from the uh, democratically elected government uh, of Taiwan. There is a bit of a stir going around, uh, given the fact that she is on the ground in Taipei right now. Uh, But we now hear from the White House saying, look, she's safe. We are monitoring this. But we're still hearing from Beijing that there potentially could be full retaliation and consequences for the fact that the United States is, in a roundabout way, recognizing Taiwan. So with for those who don't follow this, you know, who aren't the political nerds that, that you and I might be, um, why the big deal here? What What is China drawing a line, perhaps in the sand, over with regard to Taiwan? Well, essentially... China claims Taiwan as its own, despite the fact that Taiwan has uh, its own democratically elected government. Uh, Beijing believes that Taiwan should be and is a part of mainland China, and it is a part of that one China, two systems policy that it has that plays out in Taiwan, that plays out in Hong Kong, even though that independence is slowly shrinking and plays out uh, in Macau. Uh, and and ultimately, what it means is that foreign nations cannot and, and should not and do not recognize the independence of Taiwan. And while they do business with them, and for instance, in the United States, there is uh, logistics and and military uh, equipment sales that go back and forth. Uh, This is kind of, you know, drawing the ire of Beijing, who sees this as the West cozying up to an island that it thinks is its own and is kind of subverting and getting in the way of how Beijing should be operating. So ultimately, this is something that is driving Beijing up the wall right now in the fact that you have the second in line in the presidential succession now on the ground in Taipei meeting with its leaders. 
And and giving the, those leaders um, extra credibility, if you will, on the global stage. And when you were talking about how China sees Taiwan as its domain, similar to how perhaps Vladimir Putin views Ukraine as part of his Russia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is in line with that. Now, you know, it's it's far less clear that, that Beijing is going to make a move and potentially go after Taiwan in a similar way that we saw Moscow go after Ukraine. But the two countries are on the same page. Today, you had China's foreign minister uh, saying that this was uh, an act of aggression towards uh, Beijing's politics. And that was parroted by uh, a spokesperson in Moscow who called this move a provocation. So you have these two kind of, uh, you know, almost global Raya's backing each other uh, as a way to try and, you know, stand up for uh, and legitimize what each of these countries or each of these these major powers is trying to do to an outside land. I think ultimately the reason for the bluster from Beijing is because there is a um, there is an election later this year that Xi Jinping is attempting to rehold onto the presidency. So this is a way to show power, to show that authoritarian rule can stand by pushing back on the West to try and garner that support from within his own country. Geopolitics are so fascinating to watch as the places and the, and the, and the powers that be claim that they are being wronged whilst at the same time usurping rules at play and rules of engagement on so many levels. It really is. There's so much propaganda that flies around at the root of this. However, we look at, at speaker Nancy Pelosi on the ground in Taipei, how much, how much credibility does it give to Pelosi on the on the ground in the U.S.? Like, can people say that, you know, she's she's too old for office? She's she's overstayed her welcome when she is taking risks to this degree. Yeah, I mean, look, this is not new for her. Uh, decades ago, she was standing in Tiananmen Square uh, unveiling a, a kind of a banner to promote human rights uh, throughout China. This is in her kind of playbook. But I think what's what's interesting about this is you have uh, both sides in the United States, Democrats and Republicans, who are cautious and oftentimes pushing back on the rhetoric that comes out of China, that today you had a Republican from Alaska, Dan Sullivan, uh, speaking at the U.S. Capitol, saying that both both sides, Congress on both sides is uh, standing behind Speaker Pelosi in her determination to push back on China, in this determination to uh, ensure that Taiwan is going to be, um, you know, safe from any kind of antagonistic behavior that may come out uh, of Beijing. This is one of those, again, as we were talking about earlier, one of those rare moments where you have Republicans and Democrats standing by uh, to say that the way that that things are moving forward right now, even under Democratic leadership, is the way that America needs to be moving. Fascinating. The political dance in the United States gets much more solidified when taking on a common foe outside of the borders. Always great to get your perspective. Uh, Reggie, thanks for doing this, my friend. Anytime.